New Testament reading for this morning comes once again from Luke's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. Listen for what God is placing on our hearts this morning. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand straight up or stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to give it water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on this Sabbath day? When he said this, all his opponents were put to shame, and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things that he was doing. Friends, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Now, over the course of our marriage, Melissa and I have learned a lot about what it means to be married. We've had to learn how to share. We've had to learn how to prioritize certain things over others. We've had to learn how to work together as a team. And we've had to learn how to compromise and to trust each other's leadership. Well, to be honest, I've probably had to do more compromising than Melissa has had to do. Not because I'm particularly humble or because I some, have some greater sense of humility, No, no, the real reason I've had to compromise so much over the course of our relationship is because, well, Melissa's usually right. (laughs) Now, I learned this early on in our marriage, but does that stop me from trying to get my way? No, of course not. Did I mention to you that I was stubborn? Yeah. So the interesting thing about relationships, if you think about it, is that in any given relationship, you have two people coming together with different backgrounds, different experiences, different traditions, and generally speaking, different ways of doing things. Now, when I was a kid, my mom would always hand wash the dishes. It didn't matter if we had a great big family gathering or if it was a random Tuesday night with just our immediate family my mom would always wash the dishes by hand. As a matter of fact, she still does that to this day. So I learned how to wash dishes by hand. And it wasn't until I was married that Melissa was able to convince me that it's probably more sanitary to use the dishwasher than to wash things by hand. Well, once I realized that she was right, I I started to use the dishwasher and I've not looked back. But here's the funny thing. Even though Melissa convinced me to use the dishwasher, we still fight about how to load it properly. 
For years, we went back and forth. And I think on more than a couple of occasions, Melissa even stopped the dishwasher mid-cycle to reorganize and load it correctly. Yet I was totally stubborn and believed that I was loading it the right way. And it wasn't until recently when Melissa came across an article online that she was able to once and for all put the issue to bed and validate her standards. See, the article was written by a trained chef about the do's and don'ts of loading the dishwasher. According to this chef, the bowls should be loaded on the top rack in the middle. All coffee mugs should go on the top rack to one side, while the other small glasses should go on the opposite side, with the long utensils being placed in between the mugs and the bowls. On the bottom rack, large plates should go in the front rows with the smaller plates going in the back rows. Large glasses and stemware should also go go towards the back on the bottom rack. And last but not least, cutlery should go in the designated basket facing upwards. There, you've all gotten a lesson on how to load it properly. I'm just saying. So when Melissa came across this, she immediately shared it with me and said, see, this is the way you're supposed to load the dishwasher. Of course, this flew in the face of my just find a place for everything style. And I had to admit that Melissa was right. Now, I I try hard to follow the rules of loading the dishwasher, but occasionally you got to just make it work, right? Now, that's a far cry from utter shame and humiliation, but I did have to admit that I was wrong. We all know what it's like to have to swallow our pride, admit defeat, and be humbled in front of others. It's not fun. It can be embarrassing, and it can hurt. In our passage from Luke this morning, Jesus is said to have humiliated his opponents. Humiliation was probably not his end goal, but his opponents were certainly put to shame. Perhaps Jesus couldn't believe the fact that some people could be so incredibly obtuse and in their obtuseness could be so downright cruel. How could this be? How could you be so caught up in the rules that you miss that there's a person in need right in front of you? What's more, you'd be... Um, you'd be willing to help a donkey over a person? What's that old saying? You can't see the forest for the trees? Luke's gospel is the only gospel writer, or Luke's gospel is the only gospel who tells the story of Jesus healing a disabled woman in the synagogue on the Sabbath. She is a virtual nobody. She is not noticed. We don't even know her name. She is someone to whom no one talks to because she's different. She's told to come back on a different day, any day but the Sabbath. The Sabbath is meant to be kept holy and sacred, not for silly things like healing and restoration. It seems to me that Jesus' opponents have very little in the way of empathy. They seem to have no idea how to share in the feelings and the pain that this disabled woman felt. They seem to have no idea of what it must have been like to have her debilitating ailment. 
half bent over, most likely unable to, to participate in normal social interactions, unable to, face, uh, to have face-to-face -face conversations in her community. We can imagine how this condition would have led to some sense of marginalization or isolation. And let's remember that in the ancient world, this woman was considered no more valuable than a beast of burden, forever in a servile position of an ox or a donkey. How could this be? One of my favorite authors and speakers is research professor and TED Talk phenomenon, uh, Dr. Brene Brown. Brene reached internet celebrity when her first TED Talk reached nearly 40 million views and is still one of the top five most viewed TED Talks in the world. And she's the first person to have a TED Talk developed into an hour-long special on Netflix. Brene has spent more, time, uh, more than a decade studying vulnerability and courage, authenticity and shame. She spent the first five years of her decade-long study focusing on shame and empathy and is now using that work to explore a concept that she calls wholeheartedness. Well, if you haven't had the chance to read any of her New York Times best-selling books or watch her videos online and on Netflix, I highly recommend that you check them out. Not only are they interesting and thought-provoking, but I personally detect theological undertones which helps us better understand our calls as followers of Jesus. And so there's this cartoon that's set to one of Brene's talks on empathy. It's online and you can, you can watch it. And in that short video, Brene talks about the difference between sympathy and empathy. She says empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy is feeling with people. She goes on to say that for her, empathy is this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep, dark hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, hey, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, I know what it's like down here and you're not alone. Sympathy, on the other hand, is like standing back and saying, oh, it's bad down there. Mm, you want a sandwich? Empathy is a choice. And it's a vulnerable choice. Because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. The video goes on and Brene says, rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with, at least. Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful, and we try to put a silver lining around it. A friend had a miscarriage. Oh, at least you know you can get pregnant. A friend's marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. One of these things we do, uh, 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 one of these, uh, one of the, the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. 
if I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. That was most of the dialogue from the short two and a half minute video, but I promise it's worth checking out on your own. Isn't that dialogue interesting? Brene says that rarely does a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. Isn't that the truth? How often have we experienced that in our own lives? When something bad has happened, it's always more meaningful for someone to walk with us than to say, at least. Or worse, come back some other time. That's what the synagogue leaders did. They told the woman to come back during business hours. The synagogue leaders were concerned with preserving the order of the law. A worthy endeavor to be sure, but their concern precluded them from understanding the compassionate perspective offered by Jesus. Like the priest, the Levite, the rich fool, and countless others, they seemed to miss the mark. They failed to make the connection. In this story tucked away in the recesses of Luke's Gospel, we are reminded of the upside-down, countercultural, revolutionary, and transformative nature of the Gospel. Not only does Jesus lay His hands on and heal the woman plagued for 18 years with a debilitating disease, and more than likely all kinds of social marginalization and oppression, but he called her he called to her naming her as a daughter of Abraham a child of God shifting her from obscurity and anonymity to status within the community Jesus makes a connection with her he names her he heals her he restores her to health and he delivers her to the community This is the transformative nature of the Gospel. And this is the type of community we've been invited to share with others. This is our challenge. Let us put aside our own hypocrisy, our own ideologies, our own sensibilities, and take up the mantle of the cross. The one that gives voice to the oppressed. The one that gives hope to the afflicted the one that loves in the face of hate. Thanks be to God. Amen. Brothers and sisters, as a point of privilege, I'd like to share some final thoughts with you if you wouldn't mind. As you know, today is my last Sunday with you all. I have. It's been an immense joy and honor to share this summer with you, and I am utterly grateful for this opportunity. Personally, I have grown as a pastor and in my own personal identity. And I hope that you have been able or that I have been able to demonstrate some of that to you. You have certainly made an impact on me and you will always have a special place in my heart.
I am also honored to pass the baton on to Pastor Jeff. He has been a wonderful colleague to work with, and I have no doubt that he will lead, help lead you and guide you to grow as a church and in your call as a community of faith. And so I leave you with this. Shortly after Noah was born, my mother-in-law Sandy shared some sage advice with Melissa and I. She said, enjoy your time as parents. It goes by too fast. Parenthood is the perpetual state of grieving and celebrating. You grieve the loss of things and experiences you will never get again. Your child's first day of school, their first loose, loose tooth, their first haircuts. You will never be able to cradle them again in your arms like when they were first born. But at the same time, you celebrate the countless new joys you share with them. Their first steps, their first words, the first time they ride their bicycles without training wheels, and all those wonderful milestones in their lives. It all goes by too quickly. What I've learned about that sage advice Sandy shared with us is that it also applies to other parts of our lives as well. Whenever we face transition and change, we grieve the loss of the ways things used to be. Yet we celebrate the promise of what we have in store. And so friends, thanks be to God for the time we had together. And thanks be to God for what is in store for you and us in the future. Amen.